Welcome to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast, the show where brilliant professionals share how to sharpen the universal skills required to flourish at work. Enjoy more career fun, wins, meaning, and money with your host, Pete Mikaitis. Hello, and thanks for joining us here for episode 599 with Dr. Judd Brewer. If you have experienced some anxiety lately, or maybe just all the time, Dr. Judd has some really handy insights. You'll learn one, how anxiety takes over and what to do about it. Two, three steps to go from anxious to curious. And three, how to put an end to bad habit loops for good. So if you want to check out the show notes or the transcripts or the links to items we've referenced, visit awesomeatyourjob.com slash ep 599. Here's a bit about Judd. Judd Brewer, MD, PhD, is a thought leader in the field of habit change and the science of self-mastery. He is the executive medical director of behavioral health at ShareCare, the director of research and innovation at Brown University's Mindfulness Center, and an associate professor at Brown's School of Public Health and Medicine. He's the author of The Craving Mind, From Cigarettes to Smartphones to Love, Why We Get Hooked, and How We Can Break Bad Habits. Big thanks to Judd for sharing his wisdom with us. And big thanks to our sponsors. Check them out. One sponsor to check out is LinkedIn Jobs. Did you know that you can post a job for free at linkedin.com slash be awesome? And with a fresh year, perhaps you're like many small business owners looking for some fresh insight and talent to make 2024 extra amazing. Well, LinkedIn Jobs has created tremendous tools to help you find the right professionals for your team faster and free. I love how they make it so easy with their promotion and selection tools. LinkedIn isn't just another job board. No, no. No, LinkedIn has a vast network of more than a billion professionals, which makes it the best place to hire. Here's some fun facts. 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. And small businesses rate LinkedIn jobs number one in delivering quality hires versus leading competitors. You can post your job for free at linkedin.com slash be awesome. That's linkedin.com slash B-E-A-W-E-S-O-M-E, as in you are being awesome, be awesome, to post your job for free. Terms and conditions do apply. Now, here's Judd. Judd, thanks so much for joining us here on the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast. Thanks for having me. Well, I'm excited to dig into your wisdom. One of my favorite pieces I read in your bio is that you're a thought leader in the science of self-mastery. And uh, I love self-mastery. So uh, could you kick us off by maybe sharing a, um, a surprising or counterintuitive insight when it comes to human beings and achieving self-mastery? Well, just one of the many <laughs> is that it's actually less work than we tend to think it is. And in fact, the more we push, often the more the world pushes back. So, you know, this idea of what we resist persists, and that also applies to trying to master ourselves. Okay. Yeah. Well, thank you. I'll let you chew on already. Well, well, specifically, I want to zoom into uh, mastering ourselves in the realm of anxiety. Whew, there's a lot of that going around these days. I guess it's been on the upward trajectory for years. And then, you know, worldwide pandemic and lockdowns certainly, you know, kicks it up a notch. So maybe to get on the same page, do you have a working definition of anxiety that we can um, tether us and, and anchor us in this discussion? Yeah, I think a very simple one is kind of fear of the future, basically, or relating to worry. There's an official definition, you know, that I'm terrible at remembering things, but basically, 
you know, it's like worrying about something with an uncertain outcome or something in the future. Okay. Well, then it sounds like we all do some of that. And to, to some extent, uh, maybe we, we need to do some of that. And feel free to correct me if I'm off base here. I think most of us would like to have less anxiety. But can you maybe share an inspirational story or, or case study or something? Like, like what's really possible and, and realistic in terms of the human condition and our relationship to anxiety? And, and what would be, what's optimal really look like? And can we get there? I think we can. And my lab's been studying this for a long time. And we actually have some data to back that up. I'll give you an example from a patient that I've been seeing in my clinic. He was referred to me for anxiety. And in fact, <laughs> when he walked in the door, I didn't even need to have him utter a word. You know, he just, he looked pretty anxious. And when I took his history, he reported that he had actually stopped driving on the highway because he had gotten so freaked out just with having thoughts of getting in a car accident when he was on the highway. So basically, he had full-blown panic disorder, and it went something like this. He would be on the highway, and he would have this thought that would come into his mind that would say, oh, you're in a speeding bullet, is the way that he put it. And that thought would lead him to get freaked out and anxious. And then uh, his behavior was that he basically stopped driving on the highway and barely even drove on residential streets. And the result of that was that he would avoid those situations that led to these anxiety-provoking or these panic-provoking moments. Now, not only did he have panic disorder, but he also had uh, what's described as generalized anxiety disorder, where he was basically anxious all the time. It didn't have to be just when he was on the highway. So he had both panic and generalized anxiety disorder. So the idea is, and we can walk through how this works, but just to give this nugget of this case study, we started having him map out how his mind had learned to become anxious. And over time, he got much better. And I can give you a little bit of a, a cliffhanger there. We'll talk about how he did as we walk through this. But one way to think about this and how I worked with this patient was to really understand how our minds work. If we don't know how our minds work, how can we possibly work with them? And in fact, we have these very basic learning mechanisms, these survival mechanisms for example, uh, fear is a really helpful mechanism for survival. You know, if you step out into the street and you almost get hit by a car, step back onto the sidewalk, you learn, oh, look both ways before crossing the street. So that's really helpful. And there are actually only three elements that are needed to learn something like this. It's called reward-based learning. You need a trigger, a behavior, and a result. So the example with this patient, the trigger was he'd have these thoughts. The behavior was that he would avoid driving on the highway. And the result was that he avoided those panic attacks and those panicky feelings. Does that make sense? Right, and so in so doing, you, you kind of learn, okay, that's, that's the way to go, is don't get on the highway. Exactly, exactly. The problem is driving tends to be helpful, especially for folks that don't have good public transportation <laughs> systems and whatnot. And these things, these learned anxiety behaviors uh, and worry and things like that, can pigeonhole us into, you know, not even leaving our house and, you know, being very limited in many ways, let alone feeling anxious throughout the day, which isn't very good. So the way to parse this and the way that I worked with this patient was to help him see the difference between fear-based learning, right, this negative reinforcement, which is reward-based learning, is the difference between that and how that can lead to anxiety. And the difference is that fear is a helpful survival mechanism, but 
it can lead to anxiety when we have the absence of information. So think of our old brain, the survival brain, as helping us remember stuff, right? Uh, it helps us remember where food is. It helps us remember where danger is so we can avoid it. Now, on top of this old brain, we've layered on this new part of the brain, literally the neocortex. And the neocortex helps us think and plan for the future, but it needs information in order to do that. It takes past instances and scenarios. It takes current information and it kind of extrapolates into the future. But if we don't have accurate information, it just starts spinning out in these worry thoughts like, oh, this could happen. Oh, no. Oh, this could happen. This could happen. This could happen. Because that uncertainty, there are a bunch of different scenarios that pop out. And what that leads to is anxiety. So fear plus uncertainty equals anxiety. You know, fear by itself isn't a problem. Uncertainty by itself isn't a problem. But when you mix those two together, you get anxiety soup. All right. Well, so now if we zoom into the the pandemic right here and now, I'm curious, are, are we doing some fear-based learning of some particular things? You're also an expert in habits. Are there maybe some bad habits that we might be fear-based learning and reinforcing right now? Uh, what are they? Yes. So we've certainly seen this most prominently, I would say, and I pay attention to addictions and things like that because I'm an addiction psychiatrist. Drinking, for example, in society has gone up a lot. People are stress eating more, they're anxiety eating more. Social media use, especially uh, people getting glued to their news feeds, has gone up. And so, here, you know, with all this uncertainty, right, there's more anxiety. And with that anxiety as a trigger, people are going to these things like drinking alcohol to make them feel better or going into the news feeds to try to get information. Because information itself is kind of food for our brain. It helps us plan for the future. Okay. Well, and so, well, yeah, I can see how that could be problematic in terms of you're, if you're eating more than you need to, then you'll at risk of becoming more overweight or obese, drinking more, the natural consequences. And, and then the news feed in, in terms of like addiction to distraction. Yeah. Not bad news. So uh, what should we do? Well, the news feed in particular is kind of like a casino. So if you... Think of reward-based learning, and the most potent form of reward-based learning is called intermittent reinforcement. So think of a casino, and the casinos have dialed in this formula for their slot machines so that the slot machines only pay out at a certain schedule. And that schedule, you don't know when it's going to happen, otherwise we'd all win and the casinos wouldn't make money. So they dial it in so that you don't know when you're going to win, but you win basically randomly. Well, the same is true when people go on the news right now. You know, they check their news feed, nothing new, nothing new, nothing new. And then suddenly, bam, big news article hits. Dopamine spritzes in their brain and they say, whoa, wow, I should check the news more often. So the news right now is just like a slot machine. I just want to highlight that. You know, it's funny. I've been thinking more and more that I should check the news less often because I guess I'm call it self-awareness or a good week vacation in, in the nature, but it's like, it so rarely pays off. I guess what I'm looking for is I, I'd like some hope, you know, hey, we got a treatment, we got a vaccine, you know, I'd like something rich and interesting to tickle my brain, like, hmm, I've never thought about that situation or that reality for people, and and, and how about that? I, I'm quite intrigued and, and and fascinated to dig in and learn more, and I'm satisfied in the sense that I've I've had a, a pleasant learning. I very rarely get any of that <laughs> when I when I go to the news. It's sort of like, oh, yep, yep, uh, COVID's still happening, and um, yeah, politics are are still happening. Okay, I guess I'm all caught up now. Yes. <laughs> well, you're actually hinting at what we can do about this. Oh, do tell. 
Yeah, I think of this as a three-step process. The first is understanding how our minds work, right? As I mentioned earlier, if we don't know how our minds work, we can't possibly work with them. So just like my patient, well, I'll give you an example. So the patient that I described earlier, the instruction I sent him home with was to simply map out habit loops around anxiety, right? Just start there. What are the triggers? What are the behaviors? And what are the results? And once he could start to map these out, then he could start to work with them. So for example, he came back, I think it was two weeks later, and he actually looked much happier than when he first came to see me. And he couldn't wait to tell me something when he sat down in the chair. And I said, you know, what's going on? And he said, oh, I lost 14 pounds. So this guy was very, very overweight. And I looked at him kind of puzzled. And he said, you know, because I was thinking we were going to talk about anxiety. And he said, well, I mapped out these habit loops. And I realized anxiety was triggering me to eat, to, you know, stress eat. And that was actually not making me feel any better. So I stopped doing it. And granted, losing 14 pounds in two weeks is pretty fast, but let's just say, you know, he had a long way to go. He had a lot of weight to lose. And so in that case, when he just stopped overeating, he was naturally shedding weight because he was not taking in as many calories as he was burning. Long story short, with his weight, so he was overweight, he was hypertensive because of his obesity, and he also had a fatty liver, and he also had sleep apnea. Within six months, he had lost 100 pounds. (laughs) And all of those had resolved. He was normotensive. He had normal blood pressure. His liver was back to normal. He was, you know, he didn't have obstructive sleep apnea anymore. So that was the first step was helping him see what he was doing, what these habit loops were around anxiety. So that's first step, you know, map out these habit loops. What's the trigger? What's the behavior? What's the result? The second step is to see very, very clearly how rewarding or unrewarding this behavior is. There's a lot of science. This goes back to the 70s. There are these two researchers called Rascorla and Wagner who had this um, reward value curve where basically what they determined was, you know, based on previous rewards, how rewarding a behavior was in the past, you're more likely to repeat it in the future. You know, if it's rewarding, you're going to do it again. The problem is that we tend to lay down behaviors as habits and we don't pay attention to the reward value. For example, I work with a lot of people who want to quit smoking. And on average, they start smoking at the age of 13. And I actually had a patient who had come to me after 40 years of smoking. So he'd reinforced that habit loop about 300,000 times, right? And it was just habit for him. So I told him to start paying attention as he was smoking, to really just notice what it's like to smoke. And he realizes smoking actually doesn't taste very good. And so here it helped him see what the current reward value was for this behavior. Not when he was 13, when he was smoking to be cool or rebel or whatever, but right now. And so that reward value naturally drops. And we've actually done studies both with overeating and with smoking. And it takes as few as 10 to 15 times of people actually paying attention when they do these behaviors for that reward value to drop. Now that opens the door for what I call the BBO, the bigger, better offer. Our brain's going to look, you know, it's going to say, okay, smoking isn't that great. Overeating isn't that great. Give me something better. So what we have people do is just notice what it's like to just eat a normal amount of food or eat healthy food instead of junk food or not smoke a cigarette, for example. And within these 10 to 15 times, they actually flip their behavior from overeating to stopping overeating, basically eating a normal amount of or not eating the junk food because it actually feels better. And we can even teach them simple things like getting curious about what those sensations in their body feel like that urge them to eat. 
And that curiosity itself is a more rewarding, quote unquote, behavior. It's an internal behavior than getting caught up in a craving or getting caught up in worry. Uh, I remember working with a patient. Uh, we have this app-based mindfulness training for anxiety. Uh, actually, we did a couple of studies where we got a close to 60% reduction in these generalized anxiety disorder scales. She talked about when she started to get anxious, just getting curious about that anxiety itself and that it flipped into, you know, oh, curiosity feels better than feeling anxious. And then it became habitual for her to whenever she noticed anxiety starting to come up, that she would get curious about it instead, and then the anxiety would go away. So that's really the step two and three. Once we've mapped out these habit loops, step two is really noticing how unrewarding the old behavior is, which then opens up that gap to find that bigger, better offer. And the bigger, better offer can be awareness itself, curiosity. Oh, you know, what's it like when I have an urge to eat? Can I get curious about that? Oh, that curiosity itself feels pretty good. Well, well I'd love to, we could maybe apply that to some of bad habits, perhaps that uh, professionals have. Maybe they've picked it up in, in the midst of, of the pandemic, or maybe it's always been there. So it sounds like I was starting to, to do some of that with regard to my news habit, like, hmm, you know, seems like the current reward that it's uh, offering isn't that great. So I guess you could do the same if, if you're checking emails compulsively, like, you know, 30 times a day, or if you're, you're in the social media news feed. So can you sort of walk through that process in those contexts? So you get curious, you sort of notice what it's doing for you, what it's not doing for you, and then how might that play out? Yeah. So how about this? I, you know, I've been seeing a lot of people comment on how they are really struggling with procrastination right now. Okay. So I'm guessing this can apply to a lot of folks at their jobs, a lot of professionals. So whether it's stress or anxiety as that trigger, or even just seeing or thinking about a project that they need to complete, or even looking at their inbox, you know, where they, you know, they see a bunch of emails from their boss that they haven't uh, responded to yet, right? So there's the trigger, doesn't feel good. So the behavior is to procrastinate. Maybe they go on social media, maybe they do something else, maybe they go for a snack, right, as a way to avoid that unpleasant feeling of, of actually doing the work. And then the result is, you know, they get a brief relief because they're not thinking about what they should be doing. So there's a habit loop around procrastination. What we can do is help people map out that habit loop and just kind of articulate what's happening, see what they actually get from it. So how does it feel to procrastinate? Well, in the moment, it might feel a little bit better, but ultimately, you know, they're further behind on the project. They might feel guilty for going and eating food when they weren't hungry or checking out, you know, their social media feed or looking up cute pictures of puppies on Instagram or whatever it is. And then they realize, oh, this isn't actually that great. And then I have them compare what that procrastination habit feels like to actually turning off their email alerts and their phone and, and just taking an hour and just doing a deep dive into work. Nobody has ever said to me, you know, it feels terrible to be focused. It feels terrible to get work done. <laughs> you know, It actually feels very good. So here, just being able to compare what procrastination feels like compared to being focused it helps people shift from that procrastination habit into getting work done. Now, notice how this didn't take any willpower. It really just takes the power of observation, awareness. Oh, what's this feel like 
compared to, you know, what does A feel like compared to B? And if they can see the results of each of those very clearly, their brain does the work for them through this reward valuation system. Well, that's great. Sounds easy. <laughs> I'm, I'm guessing it's not in practice quite so easy of, of an experience because you, at least a few times, you're still going to feel the urge, whether it's smoking, eating, email checking, even after you've sort of observed and say, hmm, you know what, this doesn't pay off so well. The alternative is better. You're still feeling the urge. What do you recommend? Yeah, you're absolutely right. So this isn't to say that this is a magic pill or a perfect fix, especially when those urges feel very uncomfortable. Our natural inclination is to do whatever we can that can make that urge go away the fastest. You know, if it's an urge to smoke a cigarette, we quickly go out for a smoke break. If it's an urge to check our social media feeds, you know, social media is set up to decrease the barriers to entry so that we will quickly, you know, hop on social media. So that's really important to understand is that, you know, they've basically greased the skids to make it very easy for us to perpetuate these old habits. Now, so you ask, so what can we do? The key is even afterwards, you know, after we've done something, we can still learn from it. I think of this as, you know, these retrospective moments where you can still learn from a behavior if the juice is still there, right? If you can remember what it felt like to do it. So let's say that we can use procrastination, we can use eating, we can use any of these examples. After we've procrastinated, as long as we can link up the behavior and the result of the behavior, and we can feel into what that feels like or what, you know, what it feels like to even recall what it felt like previously, we can still learn from it. I think it's important to highlight that reward-based learning isn't based on the behavior itself. It's actually based on the result of the behavior. That's what drives future behavior. So the trigger isn't that important. The behavior itself isn't as important as how rewarding the behavior is. So if we can link up that behavior result or that cause and effect relationship, and if we can even do that retrospectively and we can see, oh, when I procrastinated, it didn't actually feel that good. That can help us learn for the future so that the next time we have an urge to procrastinate, we can just start to bring to mind, oh, what was it like last time I did this, right? It takes a moment of awareness, a moment of reflection. And the more we can do that, the more that opens that gap between habitual reaction and kind of a, an aware response. Does that make sense? Certainly. And so then I guess if we're trying to establish good habits, it seems like much of that would apply. It's just that the feeling is a happy, positive one. Is there any different suggestions that you'd put forward when it comes to if we're trying to build off a good habit? The same process applies just as you surmise. One thing I would say is that it's really important to notice all the nuanced qualities of these good habits. So for example, I think there's a societal habit now of divisiveness, right? Of you know this tribal psychology where it's, you know, so easy to categorize somebody or get them to categorize themselves as an us, them thing. Everything from, you know, politicizing, wearing masks to, you know, this and that. So we can notice, you know, what is it like when I feel othered, when somebody says, oh, you're wrong, I'm right. Or when we are trying to defend a position, for example, I'm right, you're wrong. What does that even feel like as compared to when we're all working together for a common cause, for example, you know, eradicating a viral infection, just hypothetically speaking. <laughs> so here for these good habits, I think it's really important to pay attention 
to what that quality feels like. And my lab's actually studying this right now. We can look at it in simple terms, like does something feel more contracted or closed down versus opened up or expanded? So it was a pop quiz hotshot. Let me ask you, what's it feel like when you are afraid or when you're anxious? Does it feel more closed down or does it feel more opened up? Oh, it's very closed down. It seems like there's almost only one option. Yeah, absolutely. And so it narrows us, it focuses us. That's a survival thing, right? If you're being chased, your job is to quickly run away as compared to sit back and you know, think about what should I do? <laughs> so now compare that to joy. Does joy feel closed down or does it feel opened up? Well, yeah, it feels opened up in the sense that if I'm really joyful, it's like, oh, you know, I might want to dance or sing or jump on trampoline or give thanks. There's many options that feel great. Right. So there we can now look at, and my lab's actually done this. If you look at these different categories, so if you look at fear, you look at anger, people tend to categorize these as more closed feelings. If you look at joy, but also look at things like curiosity or connectedness, people report that these feel much more open than these others. Now, if you had to pick, would you rather have something that feels more closed or would you rather have something that feels more open? Open, sure. Yeah. So our brain actually has these already lined up in its natural reward hierarchy. You know, we'd rather do things that feel more open than closed. Now, the reason that I bring all this forward is that we can start paying attention to things like, well, what's it like when I'm fighting with somebody on the internet or you know, with a family member? What does that feel like compared to when I'm really listening, like deeply listening, wanting to understand their perspective? Which one feels close? Which one feels open? And which of those categories actually feels better? If we simply pay attention to those things, will naturally move toward these quote-unquote good habits. I think of connectedness working together as a good habit. <laughs> it's probably the way that we will survive as a species uh, as compared to divisiveness. So if we look at those and we just pay attention to how does something feel, does it feel closed versus open, that can actually help lead us in the direction of these good habits simply through paying attention to the results of those behaviors. Okay, lovely. Well, well tell me, is there... Anything else you want to make sure to mention before we shift gears and hear about some of your favorite things? No, I just want to highlight, I think, of curiosity as a superpower. And I'll, I'll mention this and just kind of bring the circle to a close around the patient that I mentioned at the beginning. So I talked about how we taught him to pay attention, to understand how his mind worked, to notice how unrewarding, for example, stress eating was. And then what the results of these behaviors were versus you know different behaviors, he lost 100 pounds. But ultimately, over the course of about six months, and I kid you not, I remember walking out of, I was teaching a class at our School of Public Health at, at Brown University, which is on South Main Street. And this guy pulls up to the curb in his car and rolls down the window, it's my patient. And I look at him kind of confused, you know, because this is a guy that was struggling driving anywhere. And he says, oh, yeah, I'm an Uber driver now. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so here's an example. When somebody really learns how their mind works, they can really learn to master it and move from, you know, overeating to losing a bunch of weight and move from full-blown panic disorder where they can't drive to literally becoming an Uber driver. Beautiful. Well, now could you share with us a favorite quote, something you find inspiring? One immediately that comes to mind is Dorothy Parker. Uh, where she says, the cure for boredom is curiosity. There is no cure for curiosity. And how about a favorite study or experiment or bit of research? I'll give you one favorite study. Recently, 
where there was a group at UCLA where they were studying adolescents who were shown their own Instagram feeds and they were measuring their brain activity as they were uh, viewing their own Instagram feeds. And the only manipulation they made in the study was how many likes each picture got. And so they could look at the difference in brain activity between a bunch of likes and a few likes. Long story short, they found that when adolescents got a bunch of likes to their Instagram pictures, that their reward centers in their brain lit up the nucleus accumbens, which is the same network of brain regions that gets activated with every known drug of abuse, you know, alcohol, cocaine, heroin, tobacco, all this. So Instagram seems to activate these reward centers. And at the same time, they were activating these self-referential networks, this uh, default mode network, in particular, the posterior cingular cortex. And so this study was one of the first that I know of that actually linked reward and basically thinking about ourselves or something to do with ourselves. And so I thought that was absolutely fascinating. I wrote about it in my book, The Craving Mind. Yeah. Well, I don't want to say anything negative about quote-unquote influencers, you know, but, but, but sometimes... I, I just get a little bit of that impression that, you know, you're really into yourself and it's it's not so so appealing. And now I understand in some ways, hey, it's, it's a business model and, you know, they've got sponsors or whatever and and it's the game and the business they're in. But sometimes that, that just seems to kind of come across. And, and it sounds like there may be some scientific evidence that it could be a real thing. Yes. And I think people can get lost in it, just like any addiction, basically. You know, somebody's so lost in, you know, their own persona or whatever, especially if they're receiving a bunch of rewards, monetary or whatever, that it's hard to step back and get a greater perspective. I would think of YouTube really should be named MeTube because that's what that's what it's all about is, is getting that one video to go viral. And how about a favorite book? In terms of novels, I think my favorite one is The Art of Racing in the Rain. Okay. And a favorite tool, something you use to be awesome at your job? Awareness. Does that count as a tool? Oh, sure. Yeah. And a favorite habit? Being curious. And I'm curious, when it comes to the habit of being curious, are there particular go-to questions you ask yourself that spark that up and get it going? There's a particular mantra I use. Don't ask me how to spell it, uh, which is basically, um, hmm... <laughs> and I like that because it drops me into my direct experience rather than getting lost in my head. You know, what's so funny is that it's like mantra, I think is the word for it, because it will almost just like if you sing something or you do a little dance, it's hard to feel all that bad. It, like the action itself produces a, a, an emotional response. And I think, hmm, <laughs> it falls right in that same category. So thank you for that. And, and how about, is there a particular nugget you share that, that you're really known for? People quote it back to you frequently? The um, you know, linking this habit loop to reward-based learning is something that people you know, bring back to me pretty frequently. And the, um, the emphasis on curiosity as a superpower is something that I hear reverberating a lot in my teachings. And if folks want to learn more or get in touch, where would you point them? Uh, I have a website, drjud.com, D-R-J-U-D, and also a YouTube channel, same name, D-R-J-U-D. Okay. And do you have a final challenge or call to action for folks looking to be awesome at their jobs? I would say challenge yourselves to step out of your comfort zones and really embrace uncertainty so that we can move into growth zones rather than panic zones. All right, Judd, this has been a treat. Uh, I wish you all the best. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I think the thing that's going to stick with me the most from Judd is a noise. 
<laughs> I don't know if I've ever been able to say that about a guest before, but it's simply, hmm. And it just right now, as I say it, curiosity is just instantly sparked within me. And I love those quick tricks that can make a change immediately. And with that curiosity, you've got all sorts of great benefits. So cool stuff from Judd. Again, the show notes, the transcript, the links to Alan's we've referenced are at awesomeatyourjob.com slash EP599. If you haven't already, I hope you'll push subscribe so you get new episodes of the show automatically. Handy stuff. Hope to catch you next time. And peace. Thanks for listening. To get the most out of the show, we recommend two key things. First, check out the extra resources at awesomeatyourjob.com. You can find this episode's transcript and links, as well as the perfect episode for your situation. You can search the full text transcripts of hundreds of episodes or explore episodes tagged by topic and competency covered. Second, subscribe to the podcast and get future episodes automatically. You can subscribe by telling Siri and several other smartphones and speakers, subscribe to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast or by tapping subscribe in your podcast player of choice. If you'd like some extra help figuring out podcasts and how subscriptions work, visit awesomeatyourjob.com slash subscribe for guidance. Hope to catch you on the next episode of How to Be Awesome at Your Job. Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader, like that car riding right your tail. Or if you're tailgating right now, all those cars doubling as kitchens and living rooms are on AutoTrader too. Are you working out and listening to this ad at the same time? Well, multitasking pro, cars like the ones in the gym parking lot are for sale on AutoTrader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on AutoTrader. Just you wait. AutoTrader.